My name's Jose. I'm one of the student ministers here at St. Michael's. Uh, it's lovely to be with all of you this morning, um, opening up God's words together. Uh, it'd be really helpful to keep your Bibles open at that passage that we've just read in Mark. I'm going to start uh, a bit before those verses that we just read. Uh, there's many big things going on in this passage, so let me pray and ask God for help. Dear God, we thank you so much for speaking to us through your son Jesus and for your word in the Bible. Lord, please help us to understand what your word is saying to us today and please use it to change our lives. Amen. Friends, you're going to see a photo pop up on the screen. Uh, This photo was taken after a water polo match that's been called Blood in the Water. It's from the 1956 Melbourne Olympics. This man's name, Irvin Zador. He was Hungary's star player. And he was punched in the face by a Russian, Valentin Prokopov. This match, it was played weeks after the Soviets had crushed an uprising in Hungary and hundreds of Hungarians were killed. Water polo, it's a pretty tough sport normally, but this match was outright violent. Can you imagine Valentin Prokopov shaking hands with Irvin Zador after he'd punched him in the face? Can you imagine a Soviet soldier hugging a Hungarian mother after he'd killed her son. It would have to be an incredible change of heart. But we see a much greater transformation happening on the day that Jesus died. When Jesus cried out and died, a Roman centurion, the captain of the squad that killed Jesus, he confesses, surely this man was the son of God. You see, the Romans, they only called the Roman emperor the son of God. And Jesus, he looks like a weak, humiliated, crucified man. Crucifixion, being killed on a cross, it was reserved for the lowest and the worst of all criminals. But the centurion believes that Jesus, who has just died on a cross and not the Roman emperor, is the son of God. An incredible transformation. Jesus is the Son of God. That means that he is in very nature God. And that doesn't just change the life of that Roman centurion. It deeply changes our lives today. At the start of Mark 15, we see that Jesus is on trial again. In the last chapter that we looked at last week, he was, in tri- he was on trial before the religious leaders. But in this chapter, he's in a court that has power to condemn him to death. We see in verses 3 and 4 that Jesus is being accused of many things, but he stays silent. Pilate, he's the Roman governor who has the power as judge, he's almost pleading with Jesus to defend himself, saying, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. Jesus is innocent, but he doesn't defend himself. Jesus knows why he came. He said what would happen to himself in Mark chapter 10, 33 to 34. He says, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. 
Even Pilate can see that Jesus is innocent. He knows that the chief priests have handed him over out of their self-interest. And Pilate tries to release Jesus. Uh, In verse 9, he asks, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And verse 14, he asks the crowd, What crime has he committed? But every time the crowd stirred up by the chief priests, they shout that Jesus must be condemned. Crucify him! Crucify him! So the innocent Jesus, he's condemned to die the most horrible death. While a convicted murderer, Barabbas, is set free. Because of our sin, our rebellion against God, we are guilty like Barabbas. We are the ones who deserve to die. But just like Barabbas, we don't get what we deserve. Instead, Jesus commits to dying in our place. He came to die on the cross and take the punishment for our sins. We see that Jesus' physical suffering is immense. But Mark, he doesn't focus on that. He only spends a few words noting that Jesus is handed over to be flogged. Instead, Mark focuses on how Jesus is humiliated. We see this account with Jesus and the soldiers in verse 16. Uh, When he's led away to this palace, we might think that Jesus is being mocked and beaten just by a few soldiers. But this, this is the whole company of soldiers. Five or six hundred soldiers who laugh when Jesus is humiliated. It's not like the picture on the screen. It's much worse than that. Jesus is all alone. The soldiers, they pretend to treat Jesus like a king. They put a royal purple robe on him, a crown of thorns on his head. They bow down to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, in place of Hail, Caesar. They think that Jesus is just a weak man who deserves to die. But Jesus really is the king. He's not just the king of the Jews. He's king over the whole world. In verse 27, we see that Jesus is crucified between two criminals. And the humiliation and insults keep coming. We read in verses 31 to 32, The chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They think that if Jesus really was the Messiah, that he would save himself from humiliation and death. But Jesus, he knows, he has not come to save himself. We see in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to die and set many people free from sin and death forever. He had healed people. He had saved people. But they died again. But dying on the cross means that he saves many more forever. 
And in the final hours of Jesus' life, we see three key signs. We see darkness, Jesus forsaken, and the curtain torn. Firstly, darkness. In verse 33, you read, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Twelve to three. This should be the sunniest time of the day. Think about it when you're having lunch today. How would you feel if the darkness of night came over the whole land for three hours? I would be horribly confused. I would think that something seriously wrong had happened. And the thing is, something seriously wrong had happened. God, he created the world and it was very good. But everyone has rebelled against God, the giver of life, and sinned. But even though the darkness is horrifying... It also reveals something seriously right. God's justice. The darkness covering the whole land shows that God was judging all sin. All of humanity's rebellion against him, Jesus absorbs the evil and sin in himself and breaks its power forever. We see that dams hold back floodwaters during heavy rains. Uh, But if a dam bursts, the water rushes out all at once. It can wash away a town in minutes. From the time of Adam and Eve's first sin until the time of Jesus, God's judgment, his punishment for everybody's sin was held back. Just as a dam holds back a flood. But because of his love and mercy, God held back his judgment for sin until when his only son, Jesus, took our place on the cross. As Jesus hung on the cross, God allowed the dam to burst and his righteous judgment to pour out on his son who he loves. And Jesus willingly received all of God's stored up punishment for our sin. God's plan from the very first sin was to offer his son as our substitute to take our punishment for us. We might be tempted to think that no one, no one should die for their sin. I've got a friend, he explained his experience. He was on the jury for a criminal case. The man accused had done some horrible things against women. How would you feel if you were on the jury? How would you feel if you were the judge? Would it be right to not judge and not punish what this man had done wrong? In the darkness we see God judging our sin. And we see God bringing justice to a world that desperately needs it. In verse 34, we see Jesus forsaken. It says, At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sapachthani. Which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus was whipped and beaten. He had a crown of thorns pressed into his head, had nails driven through his hands and feet, and he was lifted up on a cross, hanging by the nails that pierced his body. Jesus was in agony, but this wasn't his greatest pain. Jesus was abandoned by his friends. He was mocked and insulted. He was crucified between two criminals. Jesus was humiliated, but this wasn't his greatest pain. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' greatest pain was being abandoned by his Father, God. Jesus is the perfect Son. He's obeyed his Father in everything. God is the perfect Father. He loves his Son. Yet God sends his Son to die and Jesus willingly dies. Why, why does God abandon his son? Why does Jesus die willingly? Now, I know my dad is not the perfect father and I'm certainly not the perfect son, but would my father send me to die for others and would I die willingly? I can't even imagine. But it happens to Jesus. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus was truly abandoned by God. He was separated from God as he took the weight of our sins and the judgment they deserved. Jesus, he may have cried out to God, Why have you forsaken me? But he's not looking for an answer. He's crying out because he's abandoned and it is truly horrifying. Jesus knows why he must be forsaken. Jesus knows that he was abandoned by his father so that you and I never have to be. This is the incredible sacrifice Jesus made to rescue us and bring us back into a relationship with God so that we could receive God's forgiveness and love. That's how much he loves us. Would it have been easy for the Hungarians to forgive the Soviets after the water polo? Would it have been easy for the Hungarians to forgive the Soviets after they had killed hundreds of people? It was far from easy for God to give up his son who he loved and for Jesus to be separated from his father. But Jesus died on the cross to forgive us all our sins, even the things that we're most ashamed of. And Jesus' death allows us to come to God freely. Now that brings us to our third sign, the curtain torn. The temple is where Jews came to meet with the holy God. Uh, but they couldn't meet with their God because of their sin. So most of the time, the inner parts of the temple were off limits to most people. 
The innermost part of the temple was reserved for the high priest once a year. But in verse 37 to 38 we read, With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is a massive, thick curtain, around 20 metres high. And it is torn from top to bottom. It's torn by God himself. When Jesus died for our sins, there was no longer that barrier cutting us off from God. We now have free and open access to him. Can you imagine having free and open access to the king? Or free and open access to your favourite musician or sports player? We're used to favourite or famous people being far away from us. But through Jesus we have free and open access to the God of the universe. Our sin can't stop us anymore. It's paid for by Jesus so we can come to God freely. And Jesus' death, it has a deep effect on the most unlikely person. Verse 39 says, And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was a son of God. Surely this man was the son of God. The Roman centurion was Jesus' enemy. He and his men nailed Jesus to the cross. But when Jesus cries out and dies, the centurion can't help but confess and say, Surely this man was the Son of God. He was convinced that Jesus had to be God himself. It doesn't make any sense for any Jew, to, to any Jew or Roman that any respectable person would die this horrible death. It definitely doesn't make sense to them for God to become a man and die on a cross. This centurion, he would have seen other people crucified on the cross, but when he sees how Jesus dies, he sees the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. He wasn't a friend of Jesus. He wasn't even a Jew. He was the captain of the squad that killed Jesus, but he sees that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. He is in very nature God. But he doesn't choose to glorify himself. Instead, he chooses to be a servant. He suffers and dies so that the world might know that he is the Son of God. Through Jesus, we can have free and joyful access to God the Father. And through all this, all the pain and the suffering, everything happens as God planned it. Jesus, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the righteous man did in Psalm 22 in the Old Testament, as we read before. This was written hundreds of years before his crucifixion. And Jesus' cry shows that he knew that he had to be forsaken. But also that he knows that he would not stay dead on the cross. In the second half of Psalm 22, we read, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. 
Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. Jesus is the afflicted one, but he knows he will not be abandoned forever. God will listen to his cry for help. He will not stay dead, but he will rise to life and be glorified. When we trust Jesus, we're not trusting in someone who is left abandoned and separated from God. We're trusting in the one who is vindicated as the Son of God. And we can be with Jesus in close relationship with God the Father. Over the course of Mark 15, we've seen that we're like Barabbas. We're guilty sinners who have been set free because Jesus has died in our place. And we have to respond like the centurion. We've got to declare that Jesus is the Son of God. And we've got to trust that he has died and paid for our sin. Jesus, he was separated from God to bring us close to God. God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die, even in our sin and rebellion. We receive the gift of God's love shown to you in Jesus. We might say that we've received God's love. We might say that we trust Jesus to save us. But sometimes then our mood goes up and down depending on whether we've been reading our Bible and praying or not. Sometimes our mood goes up and down depending on whether we've been doing good stuff and not doing bad stuff. But God, he isn't asking us to be good enough. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that we could never be good enough. Instead, God wants us to trust that Jesus has taken the punishment for our sin so that we can be part of his family. And so trusting Jesus gives us real and secure joy and hope. Taking inspiration from our kids' spot today, I was reading one of my favourite books yesterday. It's a kids' book called Everything a Child Should Know About God. I thought this chapter was a helpful way to wrap this up. Jesus wants to save you. Jesus died for you because he wanted to be your saviour. He will be glad to forgive your sins if you ask him to. He wants you to come and talk to him about it. You can tell him, thank you for dying for me. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Asking Jesus to be your saviour means to receive God's love and trust Jesus to save you from sin and death. If you'd like to do that, I'd love for you to pray with me. And please tell a Christian friend, we'd love to help you take your next step with Jesus. Please pray with me.
Thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins. I'm sorry for trying to be the king of my own life. Please forgive me. Thank you for being forsaken in my place because you love me so much. Please change me so that I will live with you as my king. Amen.